0: You're listening to a Dwell Community Church production. If you'd like to check out more resources, visit dwellcc.org. We've been working our way through the book of James, and James, the book of James is all about, you hear me say it every week, it's all about explaining and describing what it looks like to live the teachings of Christ out. What does it mean to be a spiritually mature person? Again, these guys were all new Christians. Christianity hadn't been around that long. And so James is writing to a Jewish background believing audience about this issue of how to live out your faith and action. What does it look like to be a mature Christian? And he's talked about how we trust God during suffering and temptation, how we treat people impartially, that all people have equal value, how Our faith is a faith that affects the way that we live and what we do and how we treat other people. Last week we talked about the mature Christian is reserved in their speech. Not meaning stuffy and uptight or something like that, but meaning careful about their word choices and understanding the power of the spoken word to either build or destroy and set the course for your life. The way you talk to people has a major impact on the quality of your life and the lives of the people you interact with. And then tonight he gets into this issue of understanding God's ways. God is not like us. He does not prioritize things the way that we prioritize them. He does not think about things the way that we think about them. But his way is better than our way. And so he really goes in and kind of compares and contrasts these two different ways, the way of the natural man and the way of the God of the universe, and how God wants to win us over into his way because it's better for us. This wisdom issue is an interesting thing to discuss. Wisdom is something that... um, has a lot of importance in the Bible. So it's important that we understand a different, a different, we be able to differentiate, for example, the difference between knowledge and wisdom. Knowledge is knowing things, be having an acquaintance with the facts. People that have a knowledge gift have excellent memories, and they just accumulate facts and ideas and knowledge. It's maybe what we would call book smart in a lot of ways, where they they can just retain. What they read, what they learn, and they know a lot of things. But knowing a lot of things, as amazing and wonderful as it is, does not mean you will live a good life. There's the other aspect, which is the skillful use of that knowledge. Not just what do you know, but how well do you take what you know and apply it to the way that you live your life. That's really where we're talking about wisdom, the shrewd application of knowledge. You may not know as much as other people, but what you do know, you can do a lot more with it to live a good life, to live in a skillful way. And the Bible is filled with this kind of wisdom, wanting us to understand how to navigate the complicated world that we find ourselves in. So wisdom is the skill of living a good life. I like Warren Wearsby and his commentary on Proverbs, which is the ultimate wisdom literature. And his title of that commentary is Be Skillful because he really is in touch with what what wisdom is all about. And he says, it tells you not how to make a living, but how to be skillful in the lost art of making a life. That's what wisdom is. And James, inspired and moved by the Holy Spirit of the creator God of the universe, wants us to have wisdom, wants us to live a good life. So he starts out then. We stopped, we left off at chapter three, verse twelve last week. We pick right up at 13. He says, Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds and the gentleness of wisdom. So he's continuing on here with his theme of beliefs and action and their connection to one another. But this word gentleness here, now my home church is going to be upset with me because I just taught on this from a different passage last week, but sorry, guys. This word gentleness here is proutes. It's what's often translated as meek. And I'm one who hates that word. Like the word meek has never been attracted. I don't even like saying it. It's like one of those words, like moist. You know, I just, Moist and meek, and it just bothers me. And, you know, Jesus was meek, and he said things like, the meek will inherit the earth. So God is meek, and he wants us to be meek. But like, I just remember being like, I can't even begin to want to be meek. It's not just that I have trouble. It's that the desire is not even there. But as I studied it, I found that the Greek word is proutes. And the Greek word, literally translated here as gentleness in this case, more often as meek, literally translated is the word warhorse. I know, you think I'm making that up, because it sounds a lot better. I wanna be a warhorse, not meek. You have to understand how the, the evolution of Greek language, okay? So in Greek culture, You know, ancient times, a horse was sort of the most powerful animal they could imagine. A war horse was the most powerful animal they could imagine with armor on it. So you can imagine, you know, a guy with a spear trying to take on a horse, an armored horse. That would be a terrifying thing. It was like the ancient world equivalent of a tank. Yet a person who weighs a tenth of what that horse weighs can sit on the back of that horse, and the horse will respond to the guidance of the rider. And the horse is far more powerful than the rider. And they were, this idea wasn't lost on the philosophers of Athens, and the word war horse became synonymous with strength under submission. And that really is the true definition of meek. It is not being weak. It is not being droopy and, nah, oh, I don't know what I want to do today. No, it's not that. It's having power in restraint, made available for God's purposes, not for our own selfish purposes. So now I love the word prautes, and I'm warming up to the word meek. But it's important that we understand this is what what he's talking about. He's saying, let you show your good behavior by your deeds with the power that you have in restraint to God in the way you live a skillful life. Be in submission to the writer who is God and use your strength to accomplish his good. And that is a way you can live your life that will fulfill you and make you whole and make you joyful and give you purpose and will impact the way that the people around you connect with God. Continuing the theme here of living out your beliefs. And so what he's going to do here is he's going to do a little compare and contrast. What is God's wisdom versus man's wisdom? And we're going to see how wildly different they are. He says in verse 14, But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes from above, but it is earthly, it is natural, it is demonic. It is demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. All he's saying here is, is that these characteristics describe us and our natural state. If you just live your life and you go with the flow and just let things go and have no restraint and no desire to show any self-control, your default setting, the way that you are, is selfish and mean, and petty. That's us. And I don't think it's that difficult to look out at the world around us and say, yeah, I mean, man has some fine qualities. There's some good things. There are great things like love and mercy and kindness. There are good things, but it is so easy for us to be selfish. And the wisdom of man is really that we live in a dog-eat-dog world And it's survival of the fittest. And it's live in whatever way you need to live in order for you to get yours. And if you have a little bit left over for the needy, well then that just makes you all the more wonderful a person. That's the way of the world. And so he breaks these down. And if you look at the Greek, you get different insights into how these words fit together. He says, don't have bitter jealousy. That is in the Greek, a word that is talking about a pungent, stinky, cutting desire for what other people have. It's like a foul stench. You know, if you're around people and you just look at what they have and you are not able to rejoice in their successes, their victories, all you see is your own lack Rather than being happy for someone who got a promotion or who got an inheritance or who has an amazing spouse or wonderful children or a great job, we look at their life and we wish them ill because we're unhappy in the way we live our lives. That's the way we are. Left unchecked, that's what's in our hearts. Selfish ambition is just putting yourself forward even if it means harming someone else. We call that the corporate ladder. We call that getting ahead. You know, again, survival of the fittest. If I have to make someone else look bad or rat them out or lie about them and their performance in order to get ahead and get my career and get to the place that I want to be in my life, well, who cares if I have to, you know, hurt a few people along the way. I'll make it up and be a good person when I'm in leadership or when I'm in the authority that I want to have or the role that I want to have. I'll do more good, but you have to be dirty sometimes to get there. That is the wisdom of man. Arrogance, in the Greek, what it really means is boasting superiority over others, believing that you are better, that you have more value, than other people, and you are prideful at your own wisdom. Not only do you think you're better than everyone else, you think you know better than everyone else. And there's sort of a, a looking down upon others whom you, they are your defeated foes. And, of course, lying. And lying here is not just in the sense of telling false things, It's more in the sense of being fake, putting a fake attitude, a fake uh, face on, wearing a mask and pretending like you're someone that you're not, that you're better than you actually are. And in the specific context of what James is talking about is pretending when you're spiritual when you're not you have a persona that you have cultivated so that others will see you a specific way. But it is manipulative. The goal is to get what you want. This, James says, is what's natural for man apart from God. And I hope that you can see that all of this is in us. I know it's in me. We're certainly capable of these things. We're definitely guilty of these things. Maybe we've grown and maybe we've come a long way. Uh, Maybe not. And maybe we have, no matter how far we've come, we've got a long way to go. But, you know, this is one of the things that I find most convincing about the Bible is the accurate picture it paints of the human heart, namely my heart. But this is what is easy for us. And he says the results of this are chaos and evil. Which makes sense. Imagine you had a bunch of people running around that were bitterly jealous, selfishly ambitious, arrogant, and liars. Well, we don't have to imagine, do we? It's a very chaotic world that we live in. And there's a lot of pain and a lot of suffering and a lot of alienation and a lot of disappointment and a lot of brokenness out there because the people who are supposed to love us still do this to us. And then, if we're honest, we also see that we still do it with them our friends, our family, our children. It's a pretty ugly picture. On the other hand, we have what James says is God's wisdom. Verse 17, But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, then gentle and reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And obviously, these are a lot of good things. And he says these are the things that God is. God is this way. We were created in the image of God, so he made us with the capability of these things. Now, we rebelled against God and were broken, and so all those negative things came in because we use these things and we turn them on, the ha- on their head. Instead of using these things for the benefit of others, we use those things for the benefit of self, and that's where all the pain and suffering and evil and harm and the world comes from according to the scriptures. God's wisdom, this word pure in the Greek, is actually the word they mean, they use to talk about ritually clean. And so, what this is, is like, it's like prepared for God's use, is what this word means, or in harmony with God. So, if you think of like evil as sort of like dirt or filth, it's saying that. This is devoid of that filth. It's prepared and ready and available for God's purposes. And it is beautiful and it is lovely to him. Peaceable is really just in the sense of being kind to those who are in opposition. Now that's something that's difficult to maintain. And that's one of the big problems that we're seeing highlighted in our culture right now is how we are trashing and being terrible. They invented this thing called the internet, and then they invented this thing called social media, and all that has done is given everyone a megaphone to say what is really in their hearts without any accountability because no one could punch you in the face over the internet. The problem really isn't that we are more selfish and more troll-like than we used to be. The problem is, is that our true selves have been revealed because a restraining force has been removed. Very few people used to have the stones to say things to other people in person can now say it to the whole world as a part of a permanent record of public consciousness and what they say is often horrible. That is the human heart laid bare, the unfiltered version of what goes on in our heads and in our hearts. And God says that is not his way. That is your way. His way is legitimately to be kind and loving and to try to put down anger and contention and bring peace and harmony, especially to those who are in opposition to him. If you're here and you're like me, you were not always a Christian. I know I was living in hostile opposition to God. I wasn't sure that he exists, but I knew that if he did, I didn't want to know him. I didn't want a relationship with him because I was doing just fine in how I was ruling my own life. And I didn't need a higher power or a higher authority And when I was shaking my fist at God saying, I'll live my own life my own way, thank you very much, he was sending me love and people and opportunities and kindness, and he was wearing me down with the greatness of his mercy. And that's how he wants us to be with others, that we de-escalate conflict instead of inflaming it. Some of us, we love nothing more than just throwing gasoline on a fire and just saying a few nasty things in order to set off a wildfire for our own personal entertainment. And God says there's incredible damage that happens with that. And his character is to bring people together this word "gentle" is different from the word "gentle" he used at the beginning in verse thirteen. It's not proutes. This is the word that's usually translated as "gentle." I really liked how Kittle. Kittle is a Greek commentary. We can like take any Greek word. It's called the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament, the TDNT. And if you ever want to do a great study, what you have to do is you have to find out what the word is in Greek, and then you go to Kittel, and he'll have written like a 12-page article on how that Greek word was used and its roots through all human history going back to Aristotle and Homer. He'll show you how that Greek word was used. And this word gentle, what, what he says in describing it is, the weak are always anxiously trying to defend their power and their dignity. He who has heavenly authority can display saving, forgiving, and redeeming clemency even to his personal enemies. That what it's saying here is, is that insecure people will fight others in order to maintain their self-image. But someone secure in the knowledge of the value that they have in Christ will be willing to be humiliated and even abused if it means that they can be kind to someone in opposition. And that is what God is like. Reasonable. You know, I think of reasonable and I think of this is, uh, this is uh, the idea of just, you know, being rational. Uh, but it has a little more nuance here. It's really in the sense of open minded Able to be reasoned with. That you're not stubborn and stuck in one position and despite the evidence, you'll never consider any other point of view. That you have a certain degree of flexibility because your ultimate goal is the truth. And if new information comes in that affects your view of the truth, then it creates an opportunity for you to consider changing your position. Basically, it means that you're able to be persuaded by a good argument. That you're not stuck in your ways, thinking only one way, but in humility you have an understanding that you can learn and that you can grow. And your ego is not wrapped up in being right. And finally, merciful in the sense of goodwill toward the miserable and the afflicted. Moved in compassion towards others who are suffering and a desire to help them and do something about it. There they are next to each other in all its glory. The wisdom of man, bitter jealousy, selfish ambition, arrogance and lying, us without God, God without us, pure, peaceable, gentle, reasonable, and full of mercy. And God called to us is consider my way. Two paths, and we move back and forth between them all the time. But we can, with God's help, become more like Him by understanding the way that He views the world. By the way that He understands. We need to see things through God's eyes You know, when you see other people and they're annoying you or they're cutting you off in traffic or they smell bad and you're stuck in a line behind them or whatever it is that's got you up in a tizzy thinking about how terrible and what a despicable and disgraceful human being you're in contact with, God says, I died for that person. That is my child and I love them the same way I love you. And what if we walked around with that perspective of our fellow man, not just with the people that were easy to like, but especially with the people that were difficult. That's God's vision for us. Now, this is a good example where I I think that the chapter breaks, you know, those were not, James didn't write. My letter to the the 12 tribes abroad, chapter 1, that's put in later. And there's a chapter break here at the end of three, but I think this is a good example of where they did a bad job with the chapter break because he's just described all of these things and then he moves immediately into, what is the source of the quarrels and conflict among you? You see what he's doing? He's saying, so let's talk about you, my friends. Are you more like column A or column B? I hear there's some fighting and some quarreling among you. Let's examine What's happening? It's not the source of your pleasures that wage war in your members. You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask and you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your own selfish pleasures. So we're to read these two Different versions, these two different paths, God's wisdom and our wisdom. And we're to ask ourselves the question where am I? Are you quarreling in conflict with others? Are your desires and lusts driving you in the ill treatment of other people? Are you obsessed with what you don't have? Are you hating people in your heart? Are you so envious of what others have that it leads you into conflict with them? And are you turning to God in faith and asking him for help with these things? I think what's important to understand about this is that churches are filled with people who still act like natural men. James is writing to believers in churches all over the Roman Empire, and he knows he's not being specific to one church, one group of people. He knows that every people everywhere are characterized by these kinds of things, even Christians. And his point is to bring them to a place of humility and conflict with their own hearts is to say to them, Listen, when we say this is the easy path, this is the natural path, this is the default setting of the human race, we are talking about you and me. We're talking about all of us. And if you think that you're gonna come to Christ and you're gonna join a group of people in a church and then all of a sudden it's gonna be this flip-flop and everybody's being selfless and genuine and real and generous and kind and merciful and gentle you are going to be deeply disappointed because we are still human beings. And though we have the ability to change, change is a process. So what's the difference then between a group of Christians and everybody else? Well, for first of all, we know and believe and agree that it's wrong. That's not something you'll get everywhere. There are people that'll say that's how you should live your life. You have to love other people, bef- you know, love yourself before you can love other people. That's the wisdom of the world. I remember hearing that and just that making so much sense to me. Yeah, I just need to love myself more and then it's the trickle-down economics of love, Right? <laughs> I'll love myself more, and then, you know, everyone around me will get the byproduct of it. That sounds sweet. No. We agree that we are selfish. We agree that we are hypocritical. We agree that we are unkind. We are am- overly selfishly ambitious, and we are fully capable of putting on false airs. In fact, you kind of have to agree to those things in order to start becoming a Christian. Becoming a Christian means understanding that you have problems. The Bible calls it sin. It's just another word for rebellion against the ways that God says are good. And the beginning, the first step, really, and knowing that you need help, is to know that you have a problem. And we are here as Christians to tell you we are messed up people who are capable of all kinds of wrongs, all kinds of evil. And not only are we capable of it, we've perpetrated it in our lives. The the difference is is that we're disgusted by it. Not that we changed. (laughs) Just... That we are hopeful and desirous of growing into something better than what's caused so much pain and so much damage in the world. It means that we have a means to change. It's not that you just wake up one day and you're like, I am going to be a better person right now. that just leads to defeat immediately. The next thing you do after a resolution like that may be the most horrible thing you've ever done. It's just not possible for us to change by virtue of our own willpower because we are desperately broken. We don't know what good is until we've experienced good and we can't experience good until we start to begin to understand God. What's the is in a church, in a body of Christ, in a community of people trying to learn and grow and follow after God as we help each other? We encourage one another. We correct one another. You know, we have a framework in which we can dialogue honestly about what's going on. Consider the needs of others as more important than yourself. That is a big framework and if the people around me in my life know that it is my desire to consider the needs of others as more important than myself and they see me being selfish they don't have to say you're selfish they just have to say listen I know you're striving to be an other-centered person but here are the things that you're doing that I think are really selfish and because I believe that that comes from God and not from men, and that that person is not trying to destroy me, but is actually trying to lift me up and help me, there's a chance I might listen to them. Where is that in the world system? Where is that without God? People don't take feedback. That's like declaring war. We also have a means for conflict resolution meaning that when we alienate each other and we hurt one another, we have a path back by God's example because we alienated him and we hurt him, and yet he showed us love and reconciled us to himself in the person of Jesus Christ. We have a framework for understanding unconditional love and forgiveness. The thing that's different about a community of Christians or that can be different, is that together we understand that we can accomplish far more. Who our church is as an organization is a much better person than any of us. It accomplishes much more around the world, to the poor, in our city, in education and helping students and helping children and helping elderly, we collectively engage in something that creates an entity that does amazing things and asks nothing in return, and none of us are that good. But together, we can accomplish these kinds of things. The bottom line here, the take home here, the, the thing that I pray that you think about and consider and take home with you is that all people have fallen natures. Romans three twenty three, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but that it is the love of God that can lead us to repentance. Romans 2, 4. It is not the threat of God, it is not the fear of God, it is not what other people think, it is not what we get, it is not the reward, it is not the promise, it's that when we experience the love of God, when we come to that point where we are broken and we come to the end of ourselves and we feel like wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? How can I ever change? I'm so sick of who I am and how I live. And God comes into your life and says, now you're ready. Now you're teachable and ready to listen. And I want you to become a member of my family. And I want my spirit to dwell inside of you. And we can begin building something that is a real life. There's no question that Christians can be hypocrites. They can say one thing and do another. And that's the reality of having perfection as your goal. You want to be like God and God is perfect. And we are imperfect and we always will be imperfect on this side of the grave. We will always fail. But we can grow. And part of that growth, an important part, an essential part of that growth is failure. We must fail in order to grow. And it doesn't mean that God's a fraud just because we do a terrible job of trying to be like him. It just means that for some crazy, unimaginable, reason in the backward wisdom of God that we simply cannot understand, he has decided to manifest himself, reveal himself through a ragtag bunch of broken, selfish, megalomaniac sinners called the body of Christ. The last thing I want to say is if you're here And you don't have a relationship with God. You don't have to agree with what you've seen from Christians in order to have a relationship with Christ. I know this was the biggest thing that kept me back was my interactions with and my perception of what I saw going on with a lot of Christians that I knew. They weren't people that I admired. They weren't people I particularly wanted to emulate. They weren't even people I really wanted to hang out with And maybe that's been your experience too. And all we can say is we're sorry. And we aren't even going to tell you we're better than them. Because we're probably not. But don't let our failures and our weaknesses and our brokenness shroud for you the greatness of who he is. And that this is not about you and us, this is about you and him, and he is knocking on the door of your heart and wants you to know that he wants a relationship with you in matthew eleven twenty eight through thirty Jesus says, "Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy-laden, and I will give you rest. take my yoke upon you and lean." And learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's what I got from James 3. Thanks again, God, for our time here together this evening. Thanks for giving us a path, an alternative to self and the way that... uh, that is so easy to live but so unsatisfying. Help us to put into practice this stuff tonight as we hang out with one another. Help us to put it into practice when we go to work tomorrow. Help us to love our spouses and our children uh, and to just grow more and more into people who are like you. In Jesus' name, amen. Head on outside and we'll hang out for a bit. Thanks for listening. This has been a Dwell Community Church production.